I'm Kevin Barrett of Truth Jihad Radio, bringing you the most interesting outside the mainstream voices I can find in a quixotic attempt to figure out what's really going on. If you enjoy this kind of radio, please do go to truthjihad.com, click on the Patreon link, subscribe, get early access, free downloads, and the ineffable feeling of satisfaction of supporting some great radio. Welcome. This is the live version of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth here every Friday evening on Revolution.Radio. The greatest of listener-sponsored networks, please do go to Revolution.Radio and pay them a pittance to get into their archives on a regular basis, get something from their Zazzle store, or find another way to help out and keep this place on the air. All right, let's get going tonight. I'm going to be going boldly where... Few conspiracy theorists have gone before or are willing to go. I'm going to go way out on a limb tonight and look at some material that is edgy, even within the alternative slash conspiracy community. And I'm going even further out on a limb by admitting that I essentially believe or buy into some notions that probably the vast majority of even red-pilled people either haven't heard about or have some they're going to reject. In the second hour, Ron Unz is coming on to talk about our ongoing election train wreck. And Ron, who has gradually come up to speed on a long list of things, 9-11 and uh, the JFK assassination and uh, World War II revisionism and on and on and on, he's coming on to tell me he doesn't buy Jonathan Simon's work on the black box voting machines, that is, since we have voting machines where the input has no necessary relation and certainly no visible relation with the output, why should we believe in these elections in the first place? And looking at the data, the divergence between polling and the actual supposed results, why do we believe the so-called results when they're, they're not the ones that are obviously fabricated? The polling is transparent and very, very accurate. Anyway, uh, Ron and I will debate that in the second hour, as well as going into other aspects of this ridiculous election. And here in the first hour, um, you know, the, the test of a good conspiracy theory is you can, you can do this mathematically on a scale of 1 to 10. How important would this be if it were true? And... How likely is it that it's true? If it's really important and it's definitely obviously true, give them each a 10. You got a 100. That is the ultimate winning conspiracy theory. You hit the jackpot. Well, you know, 9-11, JFK, these are like hundreds, right? But tonight we're going to one that sounds really crazy and would be incredibly important if it were true. And frankly, I think it is. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to get pilloried for saying this. I just read Homer Van Meter's book, Dreaming Time. And all I can say is reading this thing during Halloween week uh, spooked me. <laughs> In the book, Homer Van Meter, who's a fellow Wisconsinite, tells about what he was doing between 2004, 2006 and on, a time when I was jumping into 9-11 truth, having my life upended, and he was having his life upended with a slightly different kind of battle with the, what should we call them, the Illuminati. <laughs> he was involved in two massive shootouts. He apparently killed five satanic cultists and stopped a human sacrifice in Sonoma County, California, close to Bohemian Grove on Halloween night of 2004. And then two of the surviving cultists tracked him down and shot him up in spring of 2006. And 
the whole thing has been so covered up that I didn't even hear about it until le- like a month ago. And frankly, if Homer is not telling the truth, which is what the official story is, then he must have shot himself up nearly fatally, but he couldn't have because he didn't have any powder burns. He was shot from a distance and he almost died. Somebody shot him. Who the heck shot him? <laughs> no, the official story can't tell us. So frankly, uh, Homer, your account of all of this, including the reincarnation side of it and the Illuminati side of it is fascinating, incredibly important. And Hey, I believe you. So sue me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Dr. Barrett, and then uh, I want to thank you also for uh, having me on this evening. Yeah, well, it's great to have you back. You know, your your, your 9-11 book was one of the greatest personal experience narratives I've ever encountered, and I used to collect them professionally as a folklorist. But these are even crazier. Uh, this this book and then your, 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 uh, your reincarnation book, wow. Um, you know, the cool thing, you know, I, I was like, I, my, my folklore minor and my PhD was all about getting amazing stories. Uh, I was in Morocco looking at stories of miracles of saints. That's what I did my dissertation on. But I had to look at all kinds of, uh, personal experience narr- narratives of incredible events. Uh, here in the U.S., we have UFO stories, things like that. So I'm, I'm a pro at this. And these, we call these, uh, legends. Uh, a myth is is a story that is sacred, and everybody has everybody in the whole culture believes it's true, like like the myth of Jesus or or Muhammad's revelation. That doesn't mean either of those aren't true; they're just sacred. And you're, if you're a Muslim, you believe the the Muslim one. If you're Christian, you believe the Christian one. If you're an American, you believe the myth of 1776. Right? Legends are stories that are told to frame a debate. It's there's an implied debate about what really happened, and they often are about something just amazing. And the person telling the story is saying, this is true. And then, but the community is debating, is this true or is this not true? Well, your stories, Homer, are, are the best damn legends I've ever heard. And I think they're true. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate it. I might add that uh, I have yet to run across anybody who's uh, read the book where I lay out all the details of uh, what happened that uh, has any doubt about uh my veracity, so uh, <laughs> I guess it's uh, who you choose to believe, of course, me or the cops, but uh, yeah, so far, uh, anybody that's uh, taken the time to uh, read what I've written about it and look into it has no doubts that, uh, yeah, this really happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but what's what's really strange to me is that I, how come I'm, I'm here in Wisconsin and I'm looking at all this stuff. I'm a professional conspiracy theorist after they drove me out of the university for questioning 9-11 in 2006. Why didn't I hear about this before? Somebody, somebody didn't want people to hear about this. Well, it was actually big news in uh, northern Wisconsin here off and on for uh, a couple of years. But uh, I guess if you were beyond the uh, reach of the uh, – TV stations here in uh, Rhinelander and in uh, Wausau, where it was uh, covered. Yeah, you've probably never heard of, heard of it. Though so, uh, I guess you are living in the southern part of the state. Well, I would uh, think Madison would pick it up. I, I would. I would yeah, think yeah. everybody would pick it up. This is such an insanely amazing, uh, you know, sexy sex and violence, and and you know, I mean, this. The, you'd think the media would go nuts with this. Yeah, the interesting part is uh, in California where uh, 
it got started and uh, where all the most extreme uh, violence and everything took place, it was absolutely quiet. Nobody anywhere heard anything about it. It's, uh, they went to great pains uh, to keep it absolutely quiet there, which was uh, kind of revealing. Uh, actually, the uh, crooked cop who uh, um, railed against me out in uh, California uh, who uh, attempted to uh, terrorize me um, uh, browbeat me into uh, backing up their version of events, uh, uh, threatened me at great length about uh, everything that was going to happen to me. He knew I was a writer, you know. Everything that was going to happen to me if I uh, talked about it or, heaven forbid, wrote a book about it. So, <laughs> yeah, but. Yeah, it didn't quite work. I, I wrote it anyway. So. Yeah. And that kind of tells me something about what's really happening, because if they really believed that you made the whole thing up because you're a wannabe writer, they would want you to write it up because you would give yourself away. Uh, on the other yeah. hand, if they were covering things up, they probably wouldn't want you to. And the fact that they didn't want you to, and that it looks like a lot of forces didn't want this story to be widely known about uh, is more evidence that it's true as were your bullet wounds after the 2006 shooting in Wisconsin, where the people trying to discredit you first said you shot yourself up, which is, you know, you you were really badly shot up, almost died. And that's only a a miracle that I I survived the ordeal. Uh, um, Actually kind of lapsed away when I, they finally got me in the ambulance, and uh, yeah, I was uh, I was gone. That kind of brought me back. So yeah, I was shot five times, and then uh, pretty rough shape. So yeah. they and they first tried to say you shot yourself, which is is you know that's that's like worse than the you know two bullet to the head suicide uh, of yeah. uh, you know <laughs> people like Gary Webb, right? He you know exposed CIA drug dealing and he gets the two bullet to the head suicide. Well, your uh, your five bullet uh, near suicide would be even crazier. But they finally backed off on it. They admitted you didn't shoot yourself, and they have no alternative explanation to how you showed up in the woods with near nearly dead with five bullets in you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I told the one uh, police detective when they, uh, I couldn't believe they came up with this uh, this theory of how it happened. And, uh, well, you must have shot yourself. <laughs> I looked at him and I thought, are you nuts? You know, I, said, I said to him, I said, look, I said, let's just say, if you were lunatic enough to shoot yourself, I said, you wouldn't go... Oh, gee, that wasn't so bad. Let's say we do it again and keep it up until you shot yourself five times. Yeah, boy. Yeah, well, I guess it's easier for them to try to believe something like that than to actually believe your your story because it your story is outside of their frame of reference. There, there are some parts of it that are way outside their frame of reference, which is the kind of um, the, the psychic intuitions and reincarnation part. And so I guess there's a cognitive dissonance. They can't possibly believe that. And so they have to believe this impossible thing of you shooting yourself. But uh, a rational person would go the other way around and say, well, you can't have shot yourself. Somebody put five bullets in you. Uh, we should maybe start with looking for who did that and 
<laughs> you seem to have the leads on that. In fact, you actually hired uh, private detectives who found out who did it. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, lucky enough to uh, know uh, people had friends who were capable of uh, this investigation, and uh, yeah, we found out, uh, uncovered quite a bit, which. Uh, uh, I clued the, uh, as I say in the book, you know, I had a meeting with the, the police and uh, two uh, police detectives and gave them a lowdown on what we had learned. And, uh, yeah, they kind of threw a fit over it. One uh, uh, detective sergeant uh, from Lincoln County, Wisconsin, uh, Jeff Simon was his name, uh, got so indignant. He said, uh, you know, he said, you were under all this pressure to uh, come up with some answers in this case. And he said, you come up with this crap. He said, you never consulted us about any of this private investigation stuff. And I said, well, I didn't have to. And I said, and, uh, first off, the only way I was going to get investigated is if I did it because you guys uh, showed right off that you weren't uh, – going to pursue it and weren't interested in pursuing it and then uh, he said you're just making monkeys out of us he said <laughs> he was protesting straight from the horse's mouth uh, yeah yeah just making monkeys out of us monkey's um, mouth. Oh, showing man. him up and making him look bad and they really uh really took considerable offense at it then i had a couple of uh well, reporters were on me all the time asking me questions every time we had a hearing had to appear at the courthouse and there were a bunch of those there were reporters there and trying to get my comments and uh i called the uh, police detectives morons and things like that which you know they played on tv and well the cops really got hot about that of course but yeah so about ted gunderson's uh, involvement that was that's an interesting part you know ted gunderson's pretty legendary in certain parts of the alternative media world that I inhabit. And he wrote um, a preface to your book, basically endorsing your story, calling you an American hero. And then, you know, saying this is, this is true and people are going to have to deal with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Ted was quite a guy. He was a friend of uh, a friend who uh, uh, was called in to uh, assist and investigate. And then, uh, did a remarkable job and uh, lent a considerable presence to uh, the affair. We got to be uh, excellent friends and uh, uh, investigated a couple other things that I didn't uh, cover in the book, which uh, kind of turned out tragically for both of us, I guess you'd say. But um, yeah, I think... Like, uh, what uh, I kind of concluded things, I had to cut it off somewhere, even though the story continues, you know. But uh, I, can, I think the last thing I wrote about in the book was uh, the end of uh, one hearing in uh, September of uh, 2008, after we finally had the, the trial and I was getting my sentence and everything. But... Uh, what happened after that was uh, uh, pretty significant. Uh, they had me on, uh, I got sentenced to a year's probation, among other things, and 
was on probation from uh, September 11th of uh, 2008 until uh, 11th of September on uh, in 2009. And uh, I kind of had to keep a low profile. The cops did everything they could to harass me during that time. They'd actually been harassing me for a couple of years already. They'd do things like... Uh, <clears throat> be driving down the road going or coming from work they'd pull me over for any flimsy excuse i think uh average about once every month or so uh there were county cops uh state cops you know they were all uh pretty po'd at me and uh they'd pull me over and search my vehicle and one time i threatened to shoot my dog for bearing his fangs at the at the cop and uh you know, just things like that. At one point when I was on probation, they uh, planted uh, uh, marijuana in my vegetable garden so they could uh, try and entrap me into growing pot. You know, just any dirty trick that they could think of. And, uh, but they finally had to cut me loose in uh, September of uh, 2009, so... Uh, Ted Gunderson and I got going on uh, some things we um, had on the back burner. And one of them was we uh, investigated a fellow who uh, never did find out what the guy's real name was. He went by uh, uh, his central alias was uh, Nathan Randall. And we had, uh, he was a high-level hit man and, agent provocateur and we had uh, records of just about 25 years of his movements uh, around the country and around the world uh, flights that he took from here and there here and there and uh, stays in hotels and condos and rental car receipts and just an enormous amount of uh, documentation on uh, this guy's movements, and we finally figured out that uh, you know, about all the mass shootings that have happened uh, in this country, uh, which conveniently happened uh, about the time they've got legislation of some sort proposed uh, for gun control, you know, and the trying to outlaw AK-47s in, a, in a California, and yeah, just coincidentally, somebody shoots uh, a bunch of people out of McDonald's with an AK-47, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's funny how that kind of but, stuff happens. Like like in, in France, uh, Macron basically declares war on, on Islam and the French Muslims, and the day after that, uh, there's a beheading. <laughs> Some crazy Muslim yeah. beheads somebody. You know, these publicity, yeah. bloody publicity stunts. Yeah, well, uh, this was, we pretty much established through, uh, uh, record of this fellow's movements that, uh, he was the guy who was, uh, pulling these off. We put him on site of, uh, major shootings no less than 23 times in the course of 25 years, which is, uh, just way, way beyond, uh, anything that could possibly be coincidental and uh, as I wrote in the book uh, when we finally caught up with him he had uh, a lot of suspicious 
things uh, stashed in uh, the condo where he was staying. Like, uh, I think I made reference to the bottle of pills that all uh, uh, resembled uh, Prozac and various other uh, uh, drugs, except that uh, when uh, we had them analyzed, uh, they kind of had something similar to uh, LSD in them. And we suspect that uh, Mr. Randall had gotten close to uh, was whispering in the ear of all these fellows that uh, he talked into uh, pulling off these uh, major shootings and was perhaps substituting their their drugs and and so forth. But uh, anyway, uh, where it got tragic for us was uh, we were talking uh, since I was writing this book. Uh, Ted had convinced me that uh, we were going to uh, put all this uh, documentation in the book and get it out there. And uh, he said, once we get the book out, he had the whole plan laid out. He had connections. We were going to go on the road, (laughs) be on shows uh, such as yours here, and uh, promote it nonstop and uh, uh, break it to the public that, look, all these uh, mass shootings aren't aren't just random acts of violence. They're they're being pulled off systematically to promote the agenda of uh, gun control. But uh, what happened was uh, we were talking, he was in his, uh, uh, Ted Gunderson was in his apartment in Los Angeles. I'm back here in my house in uh, Wisconsin, and uh, he had uh, a whole file uh, we were sorting through all this documentation, and I had one here. And uh, we were talking on the phone at least once a week, sometimes a couple times a week. And uh, it eventually became evident that somebody was listening and took steps to silence us. And uh, I think it was the fourth day of February in uh, 2010. Our house, uh, my wife and mine's here in or near Rhinelander, Wisconsin, caught on fire in uh, wee hours of the morning, a sub-zero night, February, and burned down in record time. I mean, from the time the smoke alarm went off and uh, woke us up uh, until the time the entire house was uh, engulfed in flames was all about two minutes max. Wow. That's <laughs> tragically, like we lost, uh, yeah, we lost two of the three dogs we had in the fire. Oh, and, sorry to hear uh, that. I was running around looking for the dogs in uh, this good sized house and uh, couldn't find them. And I was burned so badly that uh, I nearly died again. Oh, spent, man. Uh, six weeks in the burn unit in the, uh, uh, intensive care burn unit in uh, uh, Duluth, which was uh, the nearest uh, burn unit that could possibly handle a person burned as badly as I was. I didn't think I'd live, but I fooled him and survived. And uh, You've done that a number but, of times. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody says I must have nine lives like a cat. I've corrected him and said, no, it's more like about 14 now. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
a mere two days after uh, our house burned down here in uh, Wisconsin, someone broke into Ted Anderson's apartment in Los Angeles, and among the very few things that were taken was a whole extensive file on uh, this matter that we were looking into. Uh, as a matter of fact, Ted said they were must have spent time looking for every last scrap because they managed to uh, make off with uh, everything we had on them. So they burned up everything I had and stole everything Ted had. So uh, they had his copy of uh, everything, so they knew everything we had on them so they could cover their tracks. And uh, so we were never able to prove that uh, what we knew to be a fact, that uh, all these uh, shootings were being pulled off uh, to advance a political agenda. Wow. Um, Ted Gunnerson, uh, great guy. He died uh, the last day of uh, July in 2011 in his hospital room in... Uh, Los Angeles and just about everybody who was close to him uh, when uh, he cashed him in figures that he was murdered. His, uh, the last thing he said when he was, uh, he slipped into a coma and he snapped out of it. Just long enough, uh, his daughter was in the room to tell her when he died, have him autopsied, that he knew it. He knew they had whacked him, and he wasn't going to survive it. So uh, she uh, requested an autopsy, and the officials wouldn't do it. So uh, she got a hold of his uh, body, took possession of it, and essentially had him in a cooler. And uh cost a lot of money to do an autopsy, but she uh, uh, raised the money and uh, had the autopsy done. took her a couple of months, and... Uh, when she finally uh, got the autopsy done on him, uh, they did everything they could to prevent her from getting the results. And the last time I spoke with her was uh, probably uh, four or five months after her father died, and she had still still hadn't uh, gotten the results, and I don't know if she ever did. Uh, yeah, somebody not only uh, whacked him to, of course, he was an old guy. He was 82 years old by then and uh, had cancer. He had uh, been poisoned uh, back in 2005, uh, was poisoned with arsenic and cyanide, and that led eventually to him getting uh, bladder cancer, which was uh, what he was in the hospital for when uh they uh, whacked him. So I guess being an honest FBI guy looking into the connection between satanic cults and organized crime is a high-risk occupation. Yeah. And the very last thing that uh, he said to me, uh, the very last time I spoke with him on the phone, uh, he was... uh, I uh, called him up, and he was in his hospital room uh, it was about three weeks before he died there in uh, 
uh, Los Angeles. He'd been in uh, the hospital, I think, at that point for two or three days, getting uh, bladder cancer uh, checked out and everything. And uh, he said, uh, well, get back to our our house burning down uh, in 2010 within uh, the course of uh, several months after that, there were two more fires. Uh, that happened uh, in a very similar fashion to uh, other people who were uh, at odds with uh, this bunch. And one of them was uh, um, the guy that wrote the, the Franklin cover-up. Uh, uh, John DeCamp, yeah. I, I did a series of three two-hour interviews with him in uh, 2007, I think it was. Um, amazing yeah. stuff. Yeah, an interesting guy. I talked to him. I never actually met him, but I talked to him several times on the phone. He and uh, Ted Gunderson were so close, they were practically like brothers, great friends. And uh, his house caught on fire in the same fashion uh, as ours did uh, several months after uh, our house burned near. And same same way, we hours in the morning. And uh, he and his wife managed to uh, escape, and uh, uh, they had a sprawling house in Nebraska. It was all on uh, one floor, but uh, it burned down half of his house uh, and made a narrow escape, he and his wife. Then there was another fire, and I do not know that fellow's name. Uh, He was another person known to Ted who was... uh, in opposition to this uh, same bunch of cutthroats. And uh, Ted said, uh, three people I know who are at odds with the same bunch of people have their houses burned down within uh, nine months of each other. He said, it's no accident. The very last thing he said to me in the last lucid conversation I had with him, he was in the hospital and... uh, He'd got another call was coming in when I was talking to him, and so he would talk real fast, and he said, I'm working on a lead on your fire, he said. I think I've got something here. He said, uh, I'll get out of the hospital here in a couple of days. I'll call you up, and uh, we'll go over it. And he said, i got to go now. i got to take this call. So it kind of cut me off, and I thought, huh, that's interesting. And, uh, well, I didn't hear anything from him, so uh, a week went by, and I... Uh, called him up and couldn't get him and I finally uh, his daughter answered his phone and she was in the hospital room said well dad has uh, slipped into a coma that's not looking good and uh, I thought oh geez you know so uh, yeah wow yeah people uh, people looking into this stuff uh, do often seem to have a lot of uh, unfortunate things happen to them. Uh, and, you know, John DeCamp, when he was on my radio show, mentioned that, you know, he was a friend of William Colby, the former CIA director who died in a so-called boating accident uh, right after yeah. he was getting heavily involved in some of this stuff, including the Franklin cover-up of the satanic pedophile scandal that briefly uh, flashed across the mainstream media like a meteor uh, and then disappeared. Uh, call boys visit White House uh, after midnight, uh, things like that. Um, a pedophile pimp sings national anthem at Republican National Convention. Uh, these kinds of stories uh, that nobody remembers anymore. Anyway, John said that that uh, William Colby told him 
that, you know, he said, we may not win the fight with these, these bastards right now, but, uh, down the line we might. He's, and, and he said, well, you know, one of the reasons it's going to be really hard to get these guys is that they're doing, uh, like they're doing psi. And he said that one of the things they do with, with, with systematically torturing children is they induce altered personalities. And some of these altered personalities then after this, uh, trauma, trauma based mind control can be used to access, um, ESP, psi, uh, and therefore they get access to things, you know, remote viewing and, uh, and uh, precognition. And, and so they can see what's coming in the future timelines and they can do things like, so anyway, that aspect of things, which John DeCamp mentioned in my interview with him, uh, struck me as really interesting that Colby was aware of that. He knew that bad apples in, in the CIA, FBI and other high level places were doing that. And that actually, uh, is, was one piece of the puzzle that I've always kind of been, you know, chewing on. And then your books have added a new piece to that puzzle because you're talking about not just, uh, these satanic cultists, uh, being involved with essentially demons, extra dimensional demons, but actually these extra dimensional demons actually can reincarnate, uh, repeatedly as humans, as gangsters and Satanist leaders. That's a new concept for me. And it's probably so new for a lot of folks that they're not even going to open their minds to think that it could be possible. Uh, but you've, you, your account is, is very, uh, very lucid and, and pretty convincing on that. I appreciate it. That was uh, actually when I wrote the book, I wanted to uh, completely leave any mention of uh, when I wrote the book, uh, The Dreaming Time, Anatomy of a Cover-Up, I wanted to leave uh, all mention of uh, reincarnation out of it because I uh, thought it would be a difficult concept for some people to uh, go with. and I, I wanted to get uh, the whole facts of the matter about what really happened out there. But it was the character who, uh, a friend of mine who I refer to in the book as A, you might say A for Anonymous, who uh, uh, talked me into uh, telling the whole story and putting it in there. He said, uh, look, uh, people need to know about this. Uh, uh, so I thought about it for a while and uh, talked to him some more about it and decided to... Uh, write it and tell the whole story. Uh, yes, this, uh, these people who uh, we know now as the New World Order who are pulling our strings and uh, doing things uh, to us as we speak, like trying to uh, steal the election from Trump and uh, so forth, uh, this is a continuity of... Uh, of uh, power being passed through uh, uh, the network of secret societies that's uh, been going on at the very least for many hundreds of years and perhaps even thousands of years. I feel like, uh, as I talk about in uh, my book, 4900 Nights, my first uh, lifetime uh, here being 17 centuries ago, being born in Scotland in the third century, uh, you know, I've been with uh, in this struggle now for uh, five lifetimes over the course of 1,700 years, and it has become evident to me in my past 
two lifetimes where I've kind of started to put uh, a big picture together, it's become evident to me that uh, I'm just a Johnny come lately to this struggle, that this has been going on way, way longer than uh, I've been in the picture. And uh, as I mentioned in the book, the uh, uh, motivation for the uh, mother of all crime syndicates is that uh, these fellows uh, who uh, manage to maintain, manipulate humanity and maintain power uh, perennially, uh, millennially, you might say, uh, through uh, the continuities of these uh, secret societies have uh, basically... uh, uh, did away with uh, the old axiom of uh, you can't take it with you. They found ways to uh, maintain uh, wealth and power and, in fact, uh, carry it through from one lifetime to the next. And that's a big part of uh, what it's all about. Uh, these guys are born, uh, reborn uh, when they come back to life uh, time and time again and walk into wealth and power. That's a uh, big part of uh what it's all about yeah that solves one of the questions because you know one of the questions that arises when people study this stuff is why are these people working so hard for projects that will never be realized in their lifetime there's an intergenerational aspect to this and your hypothesis is one of the best uh, possible answers maybe they're working to keep their power uh, and to build this project over the centuries, because in some sense they actually can uh, come back and enjoy the fruits of what they're doing, you know, in the future. Yeah, for these these people, um, uh, a short term goal for them is something they can accomplish in one lifetime. Uh, their long term goals are going out in, uh, hundreds of years. So, uh, entirely different way of thinking, and uh, I got to admit. Uh, having uh, the knowledge that I have uh, of what's happened in the past and what I suspect is going to uh, happen in the future, I'm, uh, I've taken uh, to operating in the same fashion. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so do, do you ever ask yourself? I know you do, but uh, when I, I wonder, you know, how much you've reflected on, you know, what puts you in the spot to do some of these things. Like when you killed five satanic cultists and stopped a human sacrifice on Halloween night of 2004, uh, the only way you were able to do that, and then you believe that the leader of the cult that you killed was a reincarnated demonic uh, character uh, who's been your nemesis for several lifetimes. Okay. And so this is the kind of stuff, of course, that's going to, you know, the, the cops can't deal with it. The, the establishment can't deal with it. Anyway, the, the reason that you were in a place and time where you did that and you, you got your nemesis and, you know, you, you were able to, to do this kind of amazing deed was strictly coming out of, you know, a combination of just being in the right place at the right time, uh, kind of intuition, you know, you had that uh, dream and so on. And now my question is, 
don't you think that there's uh well okay i'm 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 a theist and i i came to believing in god after not getting the trinity and then kind of getting an intuition of it and then finding that the the quran and a certain interpretation of islam uh, explains it pretty well which is that life is we're, we're, what are we here for it's a test you know we're here to be tested and to uh, struggle and resist evil and to do good and everybody who keeps the faith and uh, does good works whether they're you know Sabians or Christians or Muslims or whatever uh will ultimately get their reward and so i'm wondering if if you know i know you don't you reject organized religion but don't you sense that as you say in the book sometimes you you're doing god's work and that it's god or or a benevolent higher power that's put you in a position to test you to see if you can you know you can live up to do what you need to do in those kind of situations yeah, it's kind of a conundrum. Uh, you're right, I, I do reject organized religion. Uh, it, uh, well, in the past, I think, uh, Christians, God, you know, the Catholic Church has done some just awful things over the course of times with the, uh, the Inquisition and uh, subjugation of Native peoples around the world. And, I mean, they've... Uh, accounted for, to my mind, uh, way more evil than they've ever accomplished that's good over the course of the centuries. Uh, uh, well, the, the Islamic view is they never should have been a church, and they certainly should have joined, they shouldn't have joined with Rome. We're all supposed to go directly to God, not, you know, not through bureaucracy. Yeah, but I'll have to say, while I reject organized religion and really don't want to have anything to do with it, uh, there have been a couple instances over the, the course of my lifetimes where uh, I have nonetheless felt uh, an otherworldly influence. And uh, one of those was the entire episode that happened in uh, California. I was uh, driven to uh, end up where I did on Halloween night following uh, my instincts, following an intuition. And uh, once I got into the thick of it, and then, uh, you know, a shootout that lasted for several hours and chasing the guy through the woods in the middle of the night, I mean, it was, uh, believe me, one hell of an ordeal. There was, uh, as I mentioned in the book, I wasn't alone. Some Something, somebody was sitting on my shoulder helping me uh, through all of this, and... Uh, as I also mentioned, the minute that uh, that I finally killed this guy after uh, chasing him through the woods for uh, all those hours, uh, whatever it was, whatever force that was with me just left me, uh, just just like that. So, uh, just what happened there, I don't know. May never be able to explain, but. Uh, yeah, I guess I feel like, uh, in a way, I can't help but feel like I was an instrument of uh, uh, some influence there, like uh, somebody guided me and put me there uh, to get the job done. So all I can say is uh, I'm glad I got the job done. <laughs> no, you were, you're doing God's work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how deeply I want to get into the, the philosophical part of this, but I do agree with Rene Girard, who I think was the greatest anthropologist of this era, who discovered that uh, the central role of human sacrifice in a broad array of cultures, cultures all over the world have had ritual human sacrifice. You know, it isn't just the Aztecs and the Mayas and, you know, the, and Moloch. It's like, it's all over the place. You can't, you know, it's, it, in fact, Gerard said it's, it's the basis of human culture, period. Now he thought it was just scapegoating. Uh, we, we bring ourselves together by scapegoating an outsider, but, I think there's more to it, and I think you've found out what that more is, which is that there's a demonic element where when you, you know, when, when these people are, are sacrificing human beings, they're sacrificing them to demon, demonic forces. And one of those may be, as, you, as you've explained, that some of these people are gaining a kind of reincarnation-based immortality through these practices. And uh, this, you know, some of the studies of dark shamanism by anthropologists uh, suggest such things are even going on today in, in Central America and West Africa and so on and so forth. But uh, Gerard found that religion, uh, or monotheism rather, uh, as it replaces paganism, is basically about ending human sacrifice. With uh, with Judaism, it's the non-sacrifice, you know, when Abraham doesn't sacrifice his son. With Christianity, it's the, the human sacrifice of Jesus. Turns out, oh, we screwed up. We just sacrificed God or God's son or whatever. A really good guy in any case. And in Islam, uh, the non-sacrifice of Abraham is absolutely central. And the whole religion is based on the fact that they were about to sacrifice Muhammad, peace upon him. Uh, every tribe had a knife and they were all going to get him. And they showed up in his bedroom with knives and lift their knife, lift their knives up over his body. And it wasn't him because God had given him the inspiration to leave the day before. And he was hiding out in a cave, miraculously escaped. And then he led a community in actual war against pagan human sacrifice. And that's really what Islam is all about. And so you're really a Muslim warrior and you're, I'm not just a truth jihadi, but you're actually a real physical jihadi <laughs> fighting these demons. So you're a Muslim, even if you don't know it. <laughs> well, thanks, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> your, your friend A probably wouldn't agree with that. Okay. I got to talk to him some other time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Human sacrifice, I don't think is a natural, uh, human occurrence that, uh, something that, uh, Humans have fought against for uh, eons now, and uh, yeah, the Druids were some pretty twisted, bloodthirsty people. And it bothers me that uh, uh, today uh, I seem to have uh, the majority of people convinced that in uh, the, the ancient Celts were uh, uh, totally under the influence of the, the Druids and uh, worshipped them and. Uh, you know, went along with uh, their in, entire uh, view on things, and uh, nothing could be farther from the, the case. Uh, uh, I think uh, the ancient Celts weren't uh, any more religious than people are these days. Uh, the majority of them had no uh, great feelings uh, as far as any religion went at all, and uh, the Druids were always manipulating uh, things and uh, you know, stealing children from one clan to sacrifice them and uh, uh, pitting clans against each other and uh, everything with all this. And uh, it was uh, 
it was a pretty bad deal, even in uh, ancient times, fighting against uh, the Druids and their influence. And uh, it uh, kept the various clans uh, at odds against each other all the time. Uh, so, so do you, think, yeah, that, do you uh, think that was going on everywhere? Because you, you've had that experience. You have these five lifetimes kind of focused on these Celtic uh, people. You know, you're of Celtic descent. But I, I wonder if similar things are not happening everywhere. Yeah, yeah, human sacrifice was happening everywhere. Uh, similar set of circumstances. So, uh, I think uh, I'm interested in what the uh, uh, Sumerian uh, cuneiform tablets have to say on some of these matters. Uh, uh, I think... Uh, well, as we know, they were uh, written at least uh, 2,000 years before uh, anything that uh, we've come to know as being uh, parts of the Bible ever ever was written or come about. And uh, the Sumerian texts actually uh, tell uh, a lot more complete story about what happened in uh, the ancient times. Uh, really, the Bible, if you... If you read it, it's uh, you're only getting like about a tenth of uh, of of the accounting of what happened. It it's a much later, way more watered down uh, version of uh, of what happened. And, uh, then the Sumerian text they talk about uh, one of the uh, Anunnaki who uh, declared himself uh, uh, God on Earth and uh, went to uh, extremes to get humanity to uh, bow down to him. Uh, uh, Marduk, uh, M-A-R-D-U-K, uh, they uh, uh, put forth the, the idea that he's the one that started uh, human sacrifice and uh, forcing people to uh, worship him to the point that they had to sacrifice uh, great numbers of uh humans to him uh, along with everything else they had to fork over to him and uh, I tend to believe that uh, that's probably the origin of it is probably as close to the gospel truth as uh, as we're ever going to get that's that's where it all started well I think you're you're onto something there. The Sumerians, you say, the Sumerian texts are the earliest ones, and it seems like uh, the whole that whole Middle Eastern culture came out of Sumeria. And so something interesting was going on there for sure. Um, it, another interesting thing here is is the the uh, we, you know, who who are these people today, and how do they govern? And, and that you know, when you killed the cult leader during the human sacrifice that you stopped in in the redwood forest in two thousand four. Uh, you, you came up with a card. The guy had a, nothing on him uh, for ID or anything, but a kind of a what you imagine must have been a get-out-of-jail-free card. And uh, it had a, a couple of, what, a phone number on it and a CFR logo. Yeah. yeah that, describe that. That CFR logo yeah. was really interesting. Yeah, it was a CFR logo with a, a variation. Uh, the CFR logo is basically... Uh, um, picture a drawing of a naked man on a on a horse bareback on a horse and uh, this had a slight variation it had the, the naked man 
bareback on the horse, but he had a, a spear in his hand, which uh, uh, got to imagine means something to somebody or some group of somebody's out there. And uh, Ted Gunnerson uh, really studied this uh, for quite a while and talked to people, uh, tried to get a handle on it and failed. Uh, we we don't know what that's all about, but uh, yeah, the front of the card uh, looked like uh, almost like a business card. There was a uh, printed, uh, you know, was printed when the card was printed. It just looked like a business card. It was uh, looked like the, the name and uh, address uh, of uh, a restaurant in New York City, but. Uh, there was no such address, no such restaurant, and uh, all the various numbers uh, in relation to it. Uh, we can only theorize what those were. We've uh, had uh, uh, opined that perhaps it was uh, a numbered bank account. Uh, don't know. But on the back of the card, there was a number uh, written. In uh, you know, it was handwritten with uh, a pen, and I called that number as I say in the tell about in the book, and it rang uh, into the uh, FBI headquarters in Washington D.C. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And they didn't—they weren't too anxious to tell you precisely which department of the FBI it was. Yeah, the woman I got hung up on me. And uh, so I called back the next day uh, with a little different ploy, trying to uh, find out uh, just uh, exactly what department or whose office, you know, I had gotten. Uh, the number had been disconnected. Got a recording that said the number was no longer in service. And I thought, yeah, geez, <laughs> mm. <laughs> that alone told me I was into something pretty heavy duty. Right, and, and then they erased the cell phone records of what happened that night, apparently. Yeah, yeah, I learned, uh, uh, I'm still not very adept with a computer, and uh, I learned uh, in a hurry back then that uh, you've got somebody who is adept with a computer and has got uh, enough equipment. I guess it takes some special equipment to pull some of this stuff off, but... You can do just about anything, including making phone company records just appear forever after, which uh, they did. And uh, i got to admit, we did a little bit of that, too, to cover our tracks for some of our uh, phone calls back and forth. Yeah. Well, uh, I sure hope there are still a few guys like Ted Gunderson uh, in the FBI and other places I, I work. Uh, I publish at Veterans Today where there are some, you know, ex-Intel and FBI types who, you know, go through there. Of course, they, you know, everybody has their own perspective on this stuff. And, and you know, mine is is that I, I, I think these um, cults and demonic entities and uh, organized crime tentacles are working every, both sides of every street. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So it's, I, I don't think it's very easy to figure out who who are the good guys. Yeah, Ted Gunderson, uh, of course, spent 30 years in the uh, FBI and was running the uh, West Coast Bureau, which is uh, uh, second to uh, 
the headquarters in Washington is the biggest uh, branch office in the in the country by far. And uh, was a famous guy and influential in the, the FBI, and he had uh, serious misgivings about uh, the honesty of uh, the agency in uh, later years. Uh, his analysis was uh, he thought uh, during the time he was in it that uh, it was basically a, a on the up and up uh, organization. But he said uh, when he he retired in uh, I think it was about 19, 1980. And he Just said a few, few seconds left here. Okay, he said through the eighties that uh, it started turning into a rogue organization, and uh, by the time we got into the twenty first century, it was the majority of it was a rogue organization. Wow, well that's, that's trust them. Yeah, that's that's too bad. You know, where where can you turn? Well, we'll have to talk some more. Cause there's there's so much in these books. Uh, some of the most fascinating material I've ever read. Thank you so much, Homer Van Meter, author of The Dreaming Time. And uh, was it forty? How many nights was it? Uh, I guess if you can still hear me, I want to say thanks again for having me on. Okay, take care. Homer Van Meter, Kevin Barry here, back with Rana in the next hour.